I want to be very clear for, for all of the playmakers here. The future of work is a journey, not a destination. It's every step that we take now. It's the small changes that we make to ensure that we can keep and attract best talent, to build strong culture, to improve our leadership practices and our soft skills. It is everything that we're doing to build a better, more resilient organization for tomorrow. Welcome to Playmakers. I'm your host, Paul Epstein, 15-year NFL and NBA business exec and best-selling author of The Power of Playing Offense. In my journey, I have discovered that there are two types of people in this world. The difference between elite performers and the rest of the pack, or what I like to call those that play offense versus those that play defense. Defense always on their heels, offense on our toes. Defense playing not to lose, offense playing to win. Defense, the market dictates the terms, offense we operate on our terms, playing with purpose, playing with passion, and taking control of our future. So now, the question is, how do you want to play? And here on the Playmakers Podcast, we play offense 10 out of 10 times. As we ramp up toward today's episode, pull out your notepad so you can capture all the action so we can make plays and level up together. Playmakers, it's about that time to welcome Eric Termundi into the conversation. Eric is a global keynote speaker and author of the best-selling book, Rethink Work. Having been on hundreds of stages and worked with and studied the greatest places to work in the world, he knows exactly what it takes to build incredible teams that are resilient, innovative, and ready for the future of work. A former World Economic Forum global shaper and recognized as one of the top 100 emerging innovators under 35 by American Express, his ideas have been featured in Forbes, Thrive Global, and the Huffington Post. I hope you're as fired up for the conversation with Eric as I am. And as a reminder, many of the key takeaways of today's show can be found in the show notes on Playmakers Pod. Dot com. With that, let's welcome Eric Termundi into the Playmakers Podcast. Eric, welcome to Playmakers. How are we doing? Oh man, Paul, so great to be here. I know this has been a long time coming and I'm excited to have the chat. Yeah, absolutely, brother. I'm so fired up and to either introduce or reintroduce you to our Playmaker community, you know we're all about leveling up purpose, impact, leadership, culture. Literally, we're pulling on each other's heartstrings right now because I know that all of those things are super near and dear to you. So what I want to know is how if people say that you are an expert in leadership and workplace culture, there's got to be a backstory. There was something that inspired you to get involved (laughs) with the space. So what was that origin birth story on why you and I dive into the same ponds here? Man, I'm going to start today by shooting myself in the foot and say that this whole story started with my inability to get a job uh, is, is really it. Um, I was 22 years old. I did what a lot of my friends and my peers did. And they, you know, I changed one line in the cover letter, one line in the resume, and I 
took this sort of shotgun approach and tried to apply to, I think, 75 different jobs. Uh, surprise, surprise, I didn't get any of them. Uh, a lot of Literally my peers. Oh, for 75. I had one interview um, okay. that I was so nervous for because all of the stakes were riding on this one interview that I just totally bombed it. So uh, there, there was a, there was a lot going on. It was really stressful, really, uh, really intense. And I found that a lot of my peers, a lot of my colleagues, friends, a lot of my parents, friends, a lot of my older cousins were doing the same thing. It didn't matter if you were coming out of high school, out of university, out of a polytechnic or in a mid-career transition, man, finding that dream job. Holy, that is hard. Um, now, now, to be clear, I wasn't like I didn't drop out of school or anything like that. I was a business major. I got my degree. I was the vice president in operations and finance for my student union. I had an 18 million dollar budget for 25,000 students. I had the clubs experience. I had the business cases experience. <laughs> I couldn't get the job. So I'm going I'm to fast forward a little bit. Essentially, what we did is we started a, we started a company that built a tool that quantified workplace culture. So we put numbers behind the employee experience and built an HR consultancy that ultimately helped our clients attract and keep the right talent for their organizations. Now, what we found when we surveyed thousands of employees across Canada and across the United States is that, hold on a second, there is no best culture. There is no best place to work. Paul, you might love working at Google. I might hate it. Do you know that actually the best place to work in America right now is, is Cisco? That's according to Fortune uh, Top 100 Places Is to work. that right? Yeah. Number three, the third best place to work is the Hilton Hotel chain. Now, I would go ahead and guess that somebody who's making your bed at the Hilton Hotel wouldn't want to be working on the stabilization of internet for generations to come. And somebody who's working at Cisco wouldn't necessarily want to be parking your car at a Hilton. But these are both wonderful places to work. And the problem that we discovered when we surveyed thousands of employees across Canada, across America, across Western Europe, is that there was no best place to work. And if companies could tell a better story, focus on their leadership and culture practices, then they would be able to attract the best talent. And one thing that I've always said is that the best retention strategy is a good attraction strategy. Mm. So let's double click on that. I love where you're bringing us. And I've heard you in other conversations talk about the power of not only attraction, but also the inverse of it, which is to repel. So to attract or to repel, who is my tribe? Who is not my tribe? So if I was to ask you just because for, again, a lot of our playmakers, maybe this is the first time that they're tapping into your world. So if I was to ask you, all right, Eric, so maybe there isn't a unanimous best place to work the way you're framing it and I totally appreciate where you're coming from but for you personally give me a workplace culture that you are in love with and also on the flip side maybe they even have a great rep and a great brand but it's just not for Eric so hit me with both attract and repel for you I'm gonna start with repel uh and 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 I love this company because I hate this company Okay. Um, I love, I, I love Zappos. Okay. Zappos is sort of like, you know, the poster child for phenomenal culture in America. And if you take a look behind the doors at Zappos, you'll see streamers hanging from the roof. You'll hear, you'll see like, um, you'll, you'll, you'll see ferns and plants everywhere. You'll see people parading around with like reindeer antlers and shake weights and maracas and tambourines. You'll see like, Culture is incredible, like painted in bright colors on the wall. And you'll see people just like jamming and having so much fun. Man, I hate that. But 
because Zappos has doubled down on that culture, because they're so intentional about creating that experience, man, I'll tell you, they've got a lineup around the block. You know, the term blockbuster came from movies that were so popular that they had lineups around the block. Oh, they were I didn't literally know that. blockbusters. Zappos is like the blockbuster of movies, okay? They have nailed it by really establishing what they are uh, and really staying away from what they're not. Zappos will be the first one to tell you that that culture is not for everyone, but it's enough for enough people that it routinely wins some of the best place to work awards across the country for more than a decade. Um, that's what I don't like. Or that's what I like about Zappos is that I know that I wouldn't thrive in that environment. Now, Paul, you can relate very, very much to the work that we do. It is very autonomous. It is very self-driven. At times, the negative side of that, it is it can be lonely because we're out sort of on the road a lot. But for me, pre-COVID, now even post-COVID, got my fingers crossed on that one, uh, you know, 100, flight, 100 flights a year you know, maybe 50, 60 stages. Uh, We're meeting literally tens of thousands of new people every year. No two days are the same. The content, we're kind of like comedians in that we have to evolve. You know, singers and songwriters can, like Bon Jovi can rely on his songs from the 90s or even the 80s for decades. We actually perform more like comedians and that if we told the same joke twice, we're going to be booed off the stage. And so we're always evolving our content. We're always working on new things. No two days are the same. We're working on building new relationships. We're marketers, we're salespeople, we're performers, we're HR managers, and we're accountants sort of all in one. And so I love that and no pressure, but that's what I love about it is because if I'm off, uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't, why not us to say that people who are in a more traditional uh, environment, if they're not off, you know, they've, they've got equally significant stakes. Um, but in this environment that, that you and I ultimately thrive in, I'll tell you, you tell some people that we're on a hundred flights a year and they'll think, wow, that's so cool. And I tell other people, they're like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> it's cool until you do it, right? I always, I, right. same as you, brother. I, I always joke that if, the folks that think that business travel is cool are the folks that don't do business travel. And then once you do it, especially in in a surplus, I, I feel you. But I, I think a lot of folks will resonate with that even from afar. For sure, man. And that's just it. It's like, and what I often tell organizations is that when you try and be everything to everyone, you end up being nothing to anyone. And that's what Zappos has done so well is they're not trying to be everything to everyone. They're trying really hard to be intentional about exactly the environment they want to create for a specific person who will thrive in that environment. Gotcha. All right. I love that. And then real quick, we don't need to dive as deep, but just what's a culture that you've fallen in love with as of late? I mean, I'm, I'm in Vancouver in Canada. Um, we've got Arcteryx here. Um, Arcteryx is like sort of that outdoor uh, Gore-Tex jacket. It's really high-end, high-end material. I love, first of all, I love the product. And I love everything that they've, they've created. Everything that comes out of that shop is just amazing. Um, for their uh, summer parties, <laughs> often what they'll do is um, they will have everyone out to a baseball diamond, but they'll have like a big park beside it in a big parking lot and people will bring their tents and their camper vans and their trailers and they'll do big barbecue and a big softball tournament and everyone will get sort of like not like muddy and dirty but like that's what our terrace is about it's like get outside have fun 
get your hands dirty, have a shower later, maybe a day or two later, like whatever it is, but let's just get out there and, and connect with people. Now, if you know Vancouver and you know Lululemon, Lululemon is also here. It's about a 10 minute drive away from Arcteryx. Lulu does not have softball parties where you bring your tents and your trailers and you cook hot dogs and hamburgers and corn in the cob with your colleagues. But, but let's be clear, they do very similar work, right? And that's exactly what I mean. You can be in a very similar industry doing very similar things and have a wildly different culture and experience. And because both Lululemon and Arcteryx have done a good job at differentiating what their culture is about and who they're for, they're able to attract and keep the right people that are for them. Yeah, no, that that resonates a ton. So let me ask you this. We're, we're here, we're revolving around this topic of brand. I've heard you before say that the old school way of thinking about brand, it was almost exclusively about product or service. But then maybe the more the evolved way of thinking about it, you've talked about the employee experience. It doesn't take anybody that I'll say this, unless you're hiding under a rock, it's almost impossible as we try to dig out of this pandemic. And depending where you are, in your case, you're in Canada, in my case, L.A., but Playmakers literally on a global basis, we're at different stages of this transition from the pandemic. But if you were to just Google the topic of workforce or workplace, you're going to see some things. One example is the great resignation, right? There's these topical trends that are happening. So if you and I are in the employee experience space, we think of some of the pillars being recruitment, which you've already talked about, engagement, once we're actually in there, retention, how do you hold on to your stars, your key talent? If I was to ask you, biggest thing that you are hearing out in the workplace now is it the great resignation is that what's keeping people up at night or is there something even bigger than that would love to just dive into your brain because you are literally in this space as deep as anybody yeah it's funny you ask that question because i um I, i really hate to generalize too broadly there are organizations right now that are absolutely thriving and there are abs- uh, organizations that are that are that are unfortunately really struggling. The great resignation is a very very real issue depending on the statistics that you read and who the source is. You'll see numbers anywhere from 40 to 52% of Americans are interested in or looking for a new job actively right now, which is about a 50% increase over 2020 or 2019. Now the interesting sort of caveat there is that when the world is really struggling, nobody's really looking for a new job because you're not certain that it's going to be there. So to see a number increase 50% 2021 over 2020, that didn't surprise me as much. And to be fair, seeing that number of people being interested in a new job uh, doesn't surprise me that much either. And I'll tell you why. In some ways, COVID has very much been a catalyst to the future of work. You know, it is sped up what we know to be true about the future of work. The funny other thing I'll say about the future of work is that many people think that the future of work is like a destination. It's somewhere that we arrive. I want to be very clear for for all of the playmakers here. The future of work is a journey, not a destination. It's every step that we take now. It's the small changes that we make to ensure that we can keep and attract best talent, build strong culture, to improve our leadership practices and our soft skills. It is everything that we're doing to build a better, more resilient organization for tomorrow. Now, that said, 
people now, because of COVID and because of the ability to work remotely or work flexibly or to experience work and life in a new way, maybe in some cases they hadn't experienced in, in 20 or 30 years, depending on how long they've been in the workforce, are realizing that, hold on a second, my priorities have changed in COVID. I realized that I haven't spent this much time with my kids or with my husband or with my wife. I haven't been able to go for a walk with my dog in the park. I still love my job. I still love what I do. But now my employer is calling me back to the office and I can't live the life that I know is possible that I've lived for the last 18 months. Well, here's the thing. I'm going to do the exact thing that, same thing that I love to do, but I'm going to do it in a way that allows me to live ultimately my best life. Now, let's be very clear. I don't think because of COVID, people necessarily will be changing, especially like the knowledge worker will be changing necessarily what they do or they'll be changing why they do it, but they will be changing how they do it. Some people are itching to go back to the office. Many people, statistically the majority, are not. And so companies are now going to have to make a very intentional decision. Do we work flexibly or remotely or do we come back to the office? And what we're going to see if I were to get my crystal ball out over the next 18 months is the greatest reconfiguration of the workforce that we've seen since Vietnam War or even World War II. And that's not a bad thing. Companies are struggling to say, how do we keep our, our, our talent? How do we prevent them from leaving? The short answer is, if you ask me, you don't. If they want to leave, chances are they weren't necessarily supposed to be there in the first place and there was some sort of communication mismanagement on what was expected and what was being offered. And if we can ensure that alignment is now true, like Zappos is doing with their talent or like Arteryx is doing with their talent, then the talent that we're going to attract in the next 16 to 18 months because of the reconfiguration of the workplace place will be the talent that we need, perhaps the talent that we've always needed so we can build better organizations that are thriving into the future of work. As we take a short break from today's interview, I'd like to share a quick reminder to check out the episode show notes on playmakerspod.com where you will find a treasure trove of key insights, thought starters, and additional resources from today's conversation. Also, A quick shout out to our show sponsor, Audible, who is offering each and every playmaker a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial when you visit audible.playmakerspod.com. With that, let's get back to the conversation. It's time to level up. Plugging into our community here, there's a range of business executives, and, and I'll call everybody we try to democratize leadership here. To, for us, before we lead others, we must first lead ourselves. And you don't need a title to lead yourself. And so all playmakers, if they step into that space of self-leadership, we are all here kind of with that executive mind frame of really being the CEO of our life is how I like to think about it. So there's a lot of folks that functionally, at least, listening in right now, maybe they lead a team. And so if I'm listening in right now and I hear you say that and the easy button is, and maybe this is the true answer, but it's gray, right? If black is uh, fully remote and white is 100% come back into the office, gray is, uh, it's kind of a hybrid approach. But I would say 
since we can't tap into any one person's mind, but you, if you're consulting our audience right now, what should we be considering if we lead a team as we hit this fork in the road about, is it fully remote? Is it fully back in the office? Is it hybrid? What are the considerations and the factors that we should be drilling in on so that we can make the best decision for our situation? Yeah, Paul, I don't want to oversimplify here because like you said, it's not black, it's not white. In fact, it's multiple shades of gray. Um, But I do think that there's really just one thing that we need to do or one place that we need to start. And that is to stop comparing our organization Playmakers, I'm talking to you on this one. Stop comparing your organization to the organization across the street. Your people are not their people. We're not talking, even if it's the same industry, even if it's very similar work that you're doing, even if you're an accountant at a boutique accounting firm and the accounting firm across the street (laughs) uh, is doing the exact same work, don't look at them to see what's working and what's not. Start asking your people what the best environment for them is. And that's it. You know, I get this all the time. How do we be more like Google or how do we be more like Netflix? The truth is you don't. Maybe there's some sort of attitude or maybe there's some sort of feeling or emotion that you want. Maybe it's maybe it's happiness. Maybe it's play. Maybe it's creativity or innovation or entrepreneurship that you admire about another company. Bring that word back to the team and say, hey, hey team, <laughs> people that I work with every day, people that I spend more time with <laughs> than my husband or wife or kids, people that, <laughs> that I literally eat, sleep and breathe with. What is it that we can do to have a happier environment, a more fun environment, a more creative environment and start innovating internally? Can, can I share a quick story? Yeah, of course. One of the best turnarounds, corporate turnarounds that I've seen in the last 15 years comes from the beloved Domino's Pizza. Um, you know, I'll just share it really quickly in 2008 Domino's pizza, Domino's pizza was $900 million in debt. Something that we think now and think, no way, that's not possible. But you know, they almost filed for bankruptcy and if things didn't change fast, they were going to have to. What Domino's realized is that people were buying their pizza, but they weren't buying it again. And when they asked different focus groups and different, um, different customers, what their thoughts were from the pizza, they thought it actually tastes, tastes terrible. (laughs) You might, you may remember. And so they brought chefs in, they brought chefs in from all over the country. And over the next six months, they tried hundreds of different recipes, different herbs, different spices, different cheeses, different sauces, different crusts. And they reinvented their pizza over six months. And after the, you know, and it, it actually tasted really good. People kept coming back. And over the next 16, 18 months, they climbed themselves out of debt and they were actually in a really good spot. What they did after that was would be the same thing that I would ask the playmakers to do on this podcast. They would say, what can we continue to do to experiment to make our environment and our product even better? What they found is that they weren't just a pizza company, they were a technology company. And so they brought in things like the pizza tracker. <laughs> I love the pizza tracker. <laughs> they brought in things like um, your pizza profile. So now you could like tweet pizza orders. You could ask like Siri or M- or uh, or Echo or Alexa for a pizza. You didn't even have to call in anymore. They then realized that, wait a second, we're not just a pizza company. We're not just a delivery company. No, we're or sorry, we're not just a technology company. We're a delivery company too. So you, you've seen it. They've tried different automated robots, different drones. They've tried all sorts of different technologies to deliver pizza to the customer. You know, they've even partnered with various cities to pave potholes on their most common route so it doesn't damage the cars of their delivery people. 
you know, all this to say, Paul, they're not, Domino's isn't competing with Papa John's. They're not competing with Pizza Hut. No, they're in a league of their own. And the question they ask is, hey team, how do we be better than we were yesterday? That's it. It's not what's Domino or what's 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 Pizza Hut doing or what's pizza what's Papa John's doing? No, they don't care. They're trying to be a better version today than they were yesterday. And if we want to make sure that we're prepared for the future of work, if we want to build an organization that's resilient and thriving in tomorrow's workplace, which, by the way, we have no idea how that's going to look or what sort of black swan event is going to come in next. All we can really do is build a deeper foundation of trust on our team, make sure that we have time and space for these conversations and allow everyone to be a part of that process when we're looking for ideas and we're looking for suggestions to create a better place to work. Yeah, I love where you're bringing us, Eric, and something that playmakers should be familiar with in past conversations. We've talked about hosting listening sessions with your team. So we all know about external focus groups, very consumer facing, same concept, but inward looking. And the three questions, and you really tackle this in a, in a couple different shades, but it's three fundamental questions. What do we need to do more of? What do we need to do better at? What do we need to do different? And to add your spin on it, rather than compare ourselves with the industry or with our neighbors, try to insulate these things within your four walls. Do more, do better, do different. It's fascinating what you will learn when we actually have an empathetic ear and curiosity, what ideas are already in the room we just sometimes don't take the time to ask. Yeah, real quick on that too. Psychological safety is a massive um, topic of, of conversation in the workplace today. And truthfully, I think it'll be more and more um, important, not to suggest that it's not extremely important right now. But what these listening sessions do, just to piggyback off what, off what you're sharing, and, and I completely agree with that, what these listening sessions do is to create a structured and consistent space for this idea sharing. Imagine playmakers on the on the show today. You've got a junior person that's been with you for six months, eight months, twelve months. How available are you to hear these ideas? And if you were to put yourself in this individual's shoes, how safe is it for them to share? When you have a listening session like Paul suggested, you know you you said do more, do better, and do different. Do different. Yeah, I would almost say, too, the questions that I use is, is what should we start, stop, and continue doing? 100%. So, you know, it's very similar. But what happens if we were to structure these listening sessions? And again, Paul, I think you'll agree, these aren't necessarily like hand-holding sessions where you spend half a day just spilling ideas and trying to force creativity. No, the way that I see it is that if we were to have these listening sessions like every Monday from 9 to 9.15, like 15 minutes, that's it. Quick then sprints. we create... Quick sprints, right? We create this opportunity and this space for ideas to be shared. Now, let's be very clear. Say we have six people, eight people in these meetings. There's no way that every week each one, each person is going to bring an idea to the table. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? Because what these listening sessions do is to create safe space to share ideas when those avenues might not exist before. I can just imagine myself just sitting at the keyboard especially remotely because I'm not in the office, sweating, thinking of presenting this idea to a CEO, just hammering away at my keys, typing up the email and just deleting it because I just don't think it's a good time. I know my, my CEO is busy. I know they don't necessarily have time for this. I know it's not in the agenda. I'm not even going to share this idea that could transform the business forever. 
But what happens when we have these meetings on a weekly, on a biweekly basis, that safe space is created. I, people can share their ideas or not. And we've created an opportunity now to better the organization, like you said, by focusing inside our four walls. Yeah, it's beautiful because you said psychological safety and that's always been important. But I think not only in the present and the future, it's only going to increase. You also brought up trust. Everybody listening in right now, whether it's in their professional or their personal lives, trust is never a bad thing. I promise you, if you surround yourself in a high trust environment with your family, your friends, your inner circle, and or your professional team, life gets a lot better. And so if we know that we want trust, I've heard you in the past talk about how this concept, and you speak to it all the time, about one degree shifts. Talk to us about what a one degree shift is. Maybe there's a backstory there. Maybe there are some examples you could point to. And I know one of the outcomes for everybody listening in is a higher level of trust. So please, let's double or quadruple click on one degree shifts. Yeah, I mean, listen, in the research that I've done, I've learned that there are two things that people hate. Uh, Number one is change. (laughs) And number two is, is the way things are. (laughs) <laughs> that kind of puts us but in a tough a spot, conundrum. doesn't it? it? What a conundrum. We know that we can't rock the boat, that change is terrifying. But we also know that as soon as we stand still, we start to fall behind. So the essence of a one degree shift is the smallest viable change, that little iteration. Think of it as a, a compass. Think of that one degree shift that we make from everything that we learn, every conversation that we have, and every small pivot or decision that we make. You know, I'll share a quick story with you. In 2002, Dave Brailsford was assigned to coach the British cycling team, a team that in the 76-year history of the Olympics had never won gold. His job was from 2002 to 2008, get them on that podium and have a winning team. That's a tall, tall ask. The way that I see it, he had two options. Number one, he could keep pouring money into the team like coaches and organization and the organization had done in the past, or he could scrap the team altogether and start over. He actually took a different approach. He took a sh- uh, approach of, of one degree shifts. And what he did is he isolated where the real root of the problems on the British cycling team were. He found that there were numerous problems, but a few of them that sort of came to mind that I'll share with you is the first is that they realized that the riders, they were getting sick when they were riding internationally because they were shaking hands in new environments on series of, of, of plane rides that weren't familiar. And so they, they, they masked up. He brought a surgeon in to teach them how to wash their hands. They gave every rider hand sanitizer talking about being ahead of their time and uh and they said that we're going to do elbow bumps after our rides instead of handshakes i mean you know exactly what happened next the sick days went down the riders started to perform better and things started to get better they then realized that the riders when they were on the road too they weren't sleeping as well as they would have when they were at home in their comfortable environment in their comfortable bed so literally they would make little one degree shifts in the thermostat to see what temperature they would sleep better at Then they invited the riders to bring their pillows with them so they would feel a little bit more at home. Sure enough, the riders, they started to sleep better. And when they slept better, they recovered more and they recovered more. They started to ride faster. When they rode faster, they built better muscle and they started to win a little bit more. But listen, when these events started to happen, when they made these little one degree shifts, they started to have fun with the experimentation. They started almost to gamify this whole process. They said, where can we find our one degree shifts? Where can we find the little changes that we can make over and over again? One of the riders suggested that they took a look at the maintenance truck. 
Now, they've noticed that on, on the gears of the bikes, there was too much like dirt and grime that was building up. So they looked in the maintenance truck and, you know, you might think we need a new maintenance truck or we need new bikes. No, that's not the one degree shift. The one degree shift is looking at the dirt on the bottom of the truck and thinking, this shouldn't be here. So they vacuumed and swept out the back of the truck. They painted the black floor of the truck white. And every time dirt and dust started to build up, they would just sweep it out and blow it out faster. It didn't cost anything. See, here's what happened, Paul. When they started to gamify this process, when they started to look for the little changes that they could make over and over again, they started to build this trust because now they started to create and talk about ideas. Eleanor Roosevelt said, small minds discuss people, average minds discuss events, and great minds discuss ideas. And I've learned that when we just start to discuss great ideas together, especially when we're trying to take the podium of the Olympics, bonds, collaboration, community, and camaraderie are, traded, are created at levels that we can't possibly recreate anywhere else. The best uh, byproduct of this, of course, a deep sense of trust too. So what happened after six years of in numerous one degree shifts to 2008 Olympics happened. The British cycling team didn't just win bronze or silver. They won gold in seven of the 10 events at the Olympics that year. You know, the Paralympics team, they did Holy the exact smokes. same thing and won. They won seven out of 10 golds. And if you think that was a fluke, which I kind of did when I was learning more about this story, they actually did the exact same thing in London in 2012. They won seven out of 10 gold medals. But the story, it's not done. It's not done. It's almost done, but it's not done. <laughs> Brailsford, Brailsford, the coach who brought in this one degree shift theory, was then poached from the British cycling team and added to the Tour de France team for, for, for the UK. They'd never won the Tour de France before 2012. Between 2012 and 2020, the Brits had won six times. <laughs> The power of these one degree shifts, when we start to gamify and create these, these listening environments and spaces, when we start to carve out opportunity to connect, to create, to talk ideas and to innovate, that's where trust is built. Now, the one last thing I want to share before I hand it back to you, Paul, is that we're living right now in a world that is so distracted that research says that we're living 31 and a half hour days, meaning that for the, on average, uh, 17 hours that we're awake, we're doing two things at once for 42% of our day, meaning we're texting while we're on the phone, meaning that we're driving while we're trying to type an email with one finger underneath the dash, meaning while we're watching a movie with somebody, we're, we're, we're finalizing that report. And you can't build trust when you're multitasking or trying to do multiple things at once. Trust requires attention. Trust requires presence. And trust requires focus. You said this uh, earlier in our call, Paul, that leadership starts with self-leadership. And I think if we want to start with self-leadership, the best thing that I would suggest is to do a time audit of our own day. So every 10 minutes that we're awake represents about 1% of, the, of, our, of our time awake. Now, you might want, not want to do this every 10 minutes. You might want to do it every 30 minutes. But I bet we'll find that if we did a time audit, that uh, there are some incredible inefficiencies in our day, not to suggest that people are on their phones too much or doing email too much or working too much, but I bet we'll find there are inefficiencies. And when we can find those inefficiencies and clear some space so that we can have better conversations, that we can have these conversations with our, our people, that we can innovate and create, not only will trust skyrocket across the team, but we'll have some incredible results and some incredible one degree shifts along the way too. Yeah, that's, wow, what a fascinating story and I, I've actually heard you in a different lens share that story with 
not as much color and today where you really dove in it's so crazy that what worked in one environment shifts to the other so now as you said the process of going from one environment to the other one sport to another i i think that can that can be a massive game changer and for all playmakers out there just a quick exercise to do because i agree with eric that auditing your time can be a phenomenal sometimes you're not always pleased with what you learn in the immediate moment because you realize a, am I wasting time? B, am I spending or investing my time on things that really matter? Those are the types of things where I'm not going to promise you a rosy picture, but I'll promise you a better future if you actually take action because of what you shine a light on. And a quick exercise is related to business and then related to self. Uh, you're either working on your business or in your business. That's probably the, the best way to create a fork in the road. And then the other third category could be working on self. So working on self, that can be personal development as an example. Working on your business, let's say you're in a leadership role and that's where you're focusing on more strategic, high-level initiatives and you're giving the autonomy that your team deserves in order to do the work. And then working in the businesses all in the trenches, which don't get me wrong, sometimes there is a place for that, but I think it's about being mindful of how much you want to be in the business versus on the business versus working on self. Just a quick ABC exercise that I facilitated and has worked wonders, not only for me personally, but for a lot of others. Eric, let me ask you this, brother. One degree shifts. I, now it's time to shift from business to life because I think this can be a massive game changer for all of us outside of the workplace. So we have an exercise here on Playmakers that we call the lifeline. It's a very common exercise that is typically what you would do in, let's say, a purpose discovery session. So if there is a line that goes from left to right, on the left side is birth, on the right side is present day, above the line are the peaks, below the line are the valleys. So basically peaks and valleys of life, those moments that have molded you, made you who you are today. First, I'd love to know biggest peak of your life and, and we can leave it at that. Then I'm gonna ask you for the opposite, which is the valley, but here's the cool part. I'm assuming because of your massive belief in one degree shifts, I have a hunch, I don't know this for sure, but I have a hunch that maybe you dug out of whatever adverse valley you've had in your life based on implementing a one degree shift of your own. So start with a peak and then talk to us about a valley and maybe how a one degree shift helped you out of that hole. Oh my goodness, man, this is uh, heavy. First of all, what I want to say is, you know, part of what I love so much about you and your content and, and your process, which by the way, I hear like process is a very Canadian way of saying process. So maybe I, I, I mirrored you, by the way, I, I said it a minute ago because I'm like, if he's going to say process, I'm going to say process. Everybody says process. <laughs> what, what I love is that everything that you share is so actionable, man, like your exercises, the, the, the things that you can do for, for the playmakers that are listening, I think are just incredible. So, so thank you for that. Um, Here's the way that I, I, first of all, I'll say here's the way I look at life. Um, and I don't want to get too meta, but I also think that this is kind of important to share when I sort of share my response with you. Um, I don't have a five year goal or a 10 year goal. I don't have or do vision boards or goal setting exercises personally. I don't say that it's not valuable. I don't think that there's no merit to it. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying it doesn't work for me because I have no idea really where I'm going or what I'm doing, if I could be very blunt about it. Um, the one degree shift for me 
is kind of like it's kind of like going to a city that you've never been to before and someone says you need to check out the best donut shop at the far east of town and have no idea how to get there. So what I found in this road of life, as I'm driving down the streets that I've never been to before, I take left and right turns where I think I should relatively be going. I find that I've taken a wrong turn onto a one-way road going the wrong way. I've hit a parkade when I should have hit a roundabout. I've hit all these sort of mistakes. And then I found that I end up at a different spot than the donut shop. Somebody should tell me I should go. But I found that the spot that I end up because of what I've learned along the way is exactly where I want it to be. Mm, <laughs> I think the biggest problem with a five or a, I think the biggest problem with a five or a 10 year goal is the lessons that we choose to ignore three, four months into the plan because it wasn't part of where we thought we were supposed to be three or four months ago. I find that, that it limits me and what I've learned today in a conversation with you or tomorrow in a conversation with a client. And I'm, it sort of sticks me into a goal that I set based on the person that I was three or four months ago. Now, all that to say, um, being very vulnerable and true with you, uh, because I do think it's important and I don't really have anything to hide. Um, I, I was in Portland, well, just in south, just south of Portland for for an event last week, and uh, it was at a, as a beautiful resort, um, and I, I was able to bring my dad down with me, and um, we had just or I had just broken um, a milestone in my career that I, I thought would take me a lot longer than it was going to, and I'm, I'm, I'm having a really great year, and I was able to uh, during a meteor shower. <laughs> hang out with my dad on one of the fairways of the green looking up at the stars and to have him there with me you know as part of that journey he just watched the keynote it was like a standing ovation and he was just so happy for me but that that was absolute peak I've been trying really hard to make sure that my dad is is proud of me you know and I think a lot of us can can relate to that whether we like to admit it or not I'm, I'm here showing all my colors um and we talked about the last 10 years of this crazy journey. Um, the, the, the valley, though, happened about 10 years ago when I was just getting into this. And I, I didn't understand it. He didn't understand it. Of course, he wanted the best for me. And of course, he supported me. And of course, he's a, a, loving, a loving father. But, you know, his inability to grasp what this career was and my overselling of the person that I was or was going to be or was becoming uh, created a little bit of tension. And I thought that this path that I was going to go down wasn't going to be one that my dad was going to be proud of me for. And it, you know, it created... I felt almost like on, on a bit of an island. Now, of course, I have other support systems and I've got great friends and I've got great family, but I always wanted that peace. And I didn't feel at that time that I had it. Now, at that time, <laughs> I was in a basement suite with no windows. Every night my car died. So I had to unplug the battery when I turned off the car and I had to plug like the classic entrepreneurial, like eating each <laughs> event three, three meals a day, if I could afford the third one, like just everything you'd expect the entrepreneurial journey and like the lack of money and the lack of freedom and like all of those things. That was a struggle, but not having that sort of validation from, from dad was, was way worse. And to have that now come back all at the same day in the first time we could get back on a live stage um, is sort of an incredible full circle that came with thousands 
and thousands of one degree shifts. Like even you said it, you've heard that story of, of the British cycling team before. It's probably been told a hundred times since then. You said there was more color, there was more understanding. It doesn't happen just because you tell the story once more. It's because you learn from the feedback and how people receive that story to be able to tell it better the next time. Now that's just one story. We're talking about personal relationships. We're talking about career. We're talking about fitness. We're talking about balance of life and business. Man, it's uh, it's been a journey of thousands of steps and thousands of, of one degree shifts along the way. Yeah, well, I appreciate, on behalf of all playmakers, we appreciate you sharing that personal, it, it, it's interesting hearing you talk about your dad because often what I find and it is much easier in the rear view mirror of life to connect dots. And, you know, sometimes you, you you do actually find a linkage between a peak and a valley. And you talking about your dad, it reminds me the story of my dad, which uh, I'll, I'll share the very, very short cliff notes just to bring you into the loop. A, a lot of our listeners have heard this, but, you know, I lost my dad at 19 and in many ways he's inspired me more since the day he passed than when he was alive and it's because i knew what he did which was he was an educator in underprivileged communities but after meeting his students years after he passed i started to understand why he did it and students telling me things like your dad was the first person to ever believe in me i've heard something like your dad gave me a reason to think that tomorrow was worth it. And when you think of things like that, Eric, and you know, I get choked up almost just sharing this every single time because my whole life mission is just to make him proud. And I just want to have the same type of impact in the world that he had. And so you sharing a story about being able to share an experience, uh, both at a high moment and as a reflective uh, you know, learning moment, but still, like, I just think it's a beautiful piece where, to your point, it all does come back full circle, Eric, because you've been very present in the journey versus when you say, I don't have a five or 10 year plan, I think sometimes you can get overly fixated on a destination. And in your case, you're just being where your feet are, even if sometimes you don't realize it in the moment. And so, if I was to say something I always like to ask guests is, something that inspires you. So the Latin definition of inspire is to breathe life into. So if I ask you to think about something that breathes life in you, like for me, literally, I would say impact. And if I had to share a story about it, it would be pretty darn close to what I just shared about my dad. I obsess about impact because of the impact my dad made. So if I was to ask you, what inspires you or what breathes life into you? Is there a word or a value that you just literally hold so true? And maybe there's a reason behind it. Um, at the risk of sounding sort of cliche, um, I would say very simply like smiles or, or laughter. Um, and, and the reason why I say that is because you can't smile and laugh without being fully here. You know, um, yes. and, 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 and everything that I believe to be true comes from being present in the situation that we've got right now. 
I think you said it best. I, 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 sometimes I'm a little bit aimless and I don't necessarily know where I'm going, but I'll do everything I can right now to be here with whoever I'm here with. And if I can share that level of presence, if I can make somebody laugh or I can see a genuine smile on someone's face, or if we can connect through that conversation, like you said, all we've got is right now. And if I can own that moment and be here for it and invite others to be there for it too, um, that's, that's, that's all, that's all I've got, man. That is, I think the most important thing. I, it, it, I think actually really what's happening is it's reframing what you're saying too. It's impact. Um, because whether impact is in building business or creating better families or better health routines or, or, or whatever it might be, impact only happens at the times that we're present and making intentional action. That, it took me a moment to process that, but I think you are a million percent true in that. I think if everybody listening and think of if impact is making a difference, think of the times you've made the biggest difference in your life, personal or professional. And now think about were you present? Were you in the moment? And hey, who knows, Eric, maybe there was laughter and smiles too, so. involved in there too. I, yeah. I think that's a very cool connection that I personally have never thought of. So let me, um, here, one final question, and we'll do this as a mic drop. But before we do that, brother, honestly, you've been just a treasure trove of not only information relative to the world of work that we're all in and that I know these numbers like you know them. If we're going to invest over 100,000 hours into anything, please make it count. Please make it matter. Please do something that gives you energy versus depletes you of your energy. The number of over 100,000 hours is largely non-negotiable, but what you do with it is. So that is my perspective on the commitment and dedication that we owe it to ourselves to do something in life that makes us feel alive. And so with that, Eric, I know you picked up a ton of fans today, brother. Where can we find you? Where can we follow you? Yeah, I mean, look, um, I, I appreciate this uh, so much, Paul. Love the work that you do. Um, you know, I love what you said about 10,000 or 100,000 hours, too. I will say, though, that you don't become a master pianist or violinist when you're texting and practicing the violin at the same time. So that time that you shared, too, is, is dedicated, undistracted, present time. If you're doing two things at once, you could bet right away that that time will have to double. Um, so, you know, if Kobe Bryant was standing at the free throw line, you know, talking on the phone and shooting those free throws, he's not going to be the same basketball player that he was. Um, all that said, feel free to connect with me on, on LinkedIn is the best bet. Just Eric Termundi. I'm sure my name will be in the show notes, uh, ericturmundi.com. And I'm happy to help, uh, in any way that you can. Um, happy to be a part of the, of, of the community here, Paul, and appreciate your time today. Of course, Eric. And, you know, before I ask you the final question, I, I love that you're, given us a sports analogy because no shock here there are a lot of sports fans in the playmaker community and when he said the whole kobe and the free throw thing it does resonate in many ways in the sense of being present and also not expecting mastery out of the gates like in the words of many thought leaders you're probably going to suck at something when you first start it (laughs) so you know not trying to get ahead of yourself but also just realizing that Yeah, I I do think to your point is just are you living life on purpose or is it just happening to you? And when you're living on purpose, 
it's because of that presence. So that's a beautiful place for us to go. Here's the closing question, brother. Let's assume everything in your life that matters to you is taken care of. Family is in great health, great spirits. Financially, you are taken care of. You are set. You have a blank canvas between now and whenever your last day comes. But you got to dedicate and commit yourself to one thing. So what would you like to spend the rest of your life in this scenario working toward? It's it's funny because what this podcast is... Um taught me or shone a light on is that I'm, I'm, I'm living my dream job right now. You know, I, I, I think, man, there've been a lot of smiles and a lot of laughs lately and it's not financial. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing to do with the business itself. The one degree shift for me, if I were to just summarize it very, very succinctly, the one degree shift is about removing friction in every aspect of my life removing friction in my pants when they're too tight because I've eaten too much lately, removing friction in my relationship when I'm not giving my partner enough time or attention or she's not giving it to me, uh, in my business when the message isn't landing and the impact isn't being driven home, uh, in my friends when we're not connecting and sending each other goofy memes about golf and whatever it might be. All of this to me is just a, is a steady balancing act and that is done by reducing friction and making these one degree shifts. So to answer your question, it's being able to do what I get to do now, but with less friction and with uh, a, a bigger metaphorical stage so that others can live whatever their dream life might be too uh, and eliminate friction along the way as well. Beautiful. So for all playmakers out there, it's about eliminating that friction, whether whether it's thanks to the COVID-15 weight or whether it's in our relationships right. or in our business, whatever it is. Awesome stuff. Uh, just on behalf of all playmakers out there, Eric, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for helping us level up, live with greater purpose and impact. And we will be following you closely. So cheers to everything ahead. Right on, Paul. Thanks so much for your time today. Loved what you just heard? Share it with another playmaker. And if you gain significant value from today's episode and genuinely feel that you have leveled up, would so appreciate if you gave us a five-star rating. For all of today's show notes, head over to playmakerspod.com where you can not only enjoy additional resources from this show, but all previous episodes as well. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you tune in from. And on a personal note, I'd love to connect one-to-one. Hit me up anytime on LinkedIn at Paul Epstein or Instagram at Paul Epstein Speaks. Playmakers is produced by Detroit Podcast Studios in collaboration with Purpose Labs. Wishing you a high-impact week of action and purpose. See you next time on Playmakers.